As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Hello, welcome back to the Athletic Football Tactics Podcast, where this week we are talking about superstars and systems. In an era where superstar status is still rampant in media coverage and the fan experience around football, is that reflected with what we see on the pitch at the top level? No superstars here in the studio, just a trio of athletic writers with perfect alchemy. Uh, Mark Carey, Liam Thumb and Michael Cox join me. Hi, guys. Hi, Ali. Hi, Ali. I am Ali Maxwell, the dutiful water carrier, just mopping up and allowing you guys to shine. The provocative way of framing the start of this discussion, Michael, is do teams want superstars anymore? And to what extent is this an era of fitting players into systems rather than systems to players? And to what extent is that different to previous eras at the top of the game? Yeah, it's an interesting debate and it's, I suppose, a bit of an eternal debate. Arrigo Saki once said that there was only one true revolution in football and that's when football went from being an individual game to a collective game. And he said that happened with the Dutch total football side in the 1970s. I think that's probably a bit of a simplification. But yeah, when you read reports from that period, it, it certainly does seem that there was a major shift. And even when people compared, for example, uh, Platini to... Zidane, two great French number 10s. There was a lot of discussion at the time that in Zidane's era, you had to play a role in the system. You had to play for the team rather than the team working for you as the number 10. So I think there has been a shift away from superstars, but I think it's almost two debates. There's a tactical debate and there's a debate about the way football is consumed. And in that respect, I think the individual is maybe more powerful than ever. Yeah, I think we've seen a broad shift to a rise of generally sort of positional play coaches. So ones that, you know, are concerned with the occupation of space, having players staggered in, in certain ways, a really big focus on the system. There's there's a really interesting video where Roberto De Zerbi is breaking down to Glenn Murray, some of the, the ways he wants Brighton and presumably his previous teams to build up. And he's, he's speaking purely about, you know, these players and moving the markers and it's, it's fine. It's a hypothetical situation, but he's just referencing the, the shirt numbers. He's not speaking about any of the characteristics or the qualities. He's not saying you know, a number six that can play in this way or have, you know, be built like this, this, this foot, this dominant foot. And he's saying, I want this person to move here because this is the knock-on effect. And it's it's definitely become part of that. And I'm sure we'll touch on it sort of more broadly, but 
I think there's an interesting balance of coaches now that have either come through playing with people that have been in, in Cruyff teams, historically all those Dutch teams in, in the Barcelona teams, um, either that, yeah, those coaches specifically under those coaches before them, um, or now you're almost getting, and I, I hate the word disciple in this regard, but people mm -hmm. speak about that for like Arteta having worked under Guardiola and everyone takes a bit of inspiration from somewhere because coaches tend to sort of coach how, how they were coached. But I wonder if there's just broader points of analysis now becoming such a staple of, of how modern football works that the idea of having a superstar means, well, I'm reliant on this player turning up and having a really good day. But if I do my job as a coach and come up with all the solutions, then sort of the, the burden of success or failure is on me. And as a coach, I can empathise with why you'd rather have that because at least you feel like you're in control of the outcome. I was going to bring up the word control because at the heart of this discussion is what managers or head coaches want and therefore what their teams will look like. And Michael, there are two words that you've referenced quite a lot over the last few years when we've talked about managers and the head coach role. And that is a lot more onus on control and being able to put out a game plan that the players can implement rather than rely on chaos, so to speak, but also something that you mentioned recently about your perception that a lot of managers and head coaches are now essentially careerists who are wary of the fact that they will be judged much more on their tactical acumen and the game models that their teams uh, implement uh, when it comes to the future of their career and have such a short shelf life in whichever job that they have that they may be thinking a little more about the future. Do you think that's an aspect of this discussion as well? If you know you are going to be judged in your next job interview on the tactics of the of your former team, well, just trying to rely on one individual feels like perhaps not the best approach if you are thinking of your career as a whole. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I hadn't really considered that. I mean, I suppose another thing is that, or a related thing is that the superstars do tend to be at the really top clubs now. And I know to a certain extent that's always been the case. That's just how football is always going to work. But I mean, even if you go back to the 1990s, you did have, for example, a player like Matt Letizia at Southampton, who, you know, the managers who did well with Southampton were managers who unashamedly based the team around them. You had a situation at Fiorentina, for example, where Gabriel Battistuta was there for the best part of a decade. I imagine in this era, if he was there for two or three years and was performing at that level he would have gone to a bigger club sooner so the concentration of superstars is more than ever at the top clubs in part because of inequality in terms of you know financial offerings you can earn probably three or four times your your wage being a, a big six club rather than I don't know Southampton whereas back in those days it would be I don't know maybe twice as much or something so yeah that has changed things as well. I think linked to that is now that transfers happen more than ever. So you're going to have less of a settled squad the whole time. And quite possibly you have got a superstar, a player doing really well. And it happens even across the Premier League now within it. I think, you know, Brighton, probably one of the key examples of a club that maybe not necessarily superstars. Again, there's a broader argument of how you want to actually define that. And that could become an argument endlessly. But to take that as a, as a rule of thumb, a good level player that you can shape a team around that then another club will poach or they'll buy can be a really sort of sustainable financial model but if you hinge your entire play on that and you mm -hmm. can't be adaptable or come up with a system that has been ironically the, the problem for Roberto De Zerbi to, to solve more this season so I think that that sort of links into it as, as you say Ali and, and Michael mentions that yeah you want to build a blueprint that shows I can implement this elsewhere or I've got the capabilities to work in this this kind of way so yeah and then it, it, I guess it just comes down to coaches wanting to to be in charge and not just say I need this player to to, to perform and to turn up. It's funny, it's not likely him to talk about Brighton for 
any opportunity. But uh, no, I think another sort of factor within that in, in terms of the modern game as well, and it's not to say that players didn't play a lot of games in, in eras gone by, but with the, the fixture congestion now in terms of the, the schedule, whether that's at club level or international level, it's it's the two combined at so many different competitions that I think if you were to gear it more towards a, an individual who you can't simply play every single week, then that comes with its own sort of pitfalls as well. So I think that just by sheer proxy of circumstance, uh, as much as the, the tactical principles that we're discussing, I think that pragmatically you just cannot have as much focus on a, on a superstar or a, a player that you build the team around because of some of the obvious reasons before we get into the more of the nuances. I think generally we're speaking about superstars in terms of being a striker that just wants to score goals or sort of be a low touch player in a system that wants a lot of possession or a winger who tends to cheat out of possession or not want to defend and, and just be there to attack. And defence is, okay, I'm saying this in a season where the Premier League goals per game is really, really high, but I don't think as a result of the, the defensive strategies in terms of mid blocks and low blocks now are so good. They're so compact. They're so tight. Players generally in their athletic abilities got so much quicker and faster that I think you just don't tend to get the goals now or the attacks where a player can dribble through an entire defence, where you've got that much time and space in the box. I know Haaland recently had a game where he was sort of getting picked out for, for missing certain chances and, and not scoring. But even then were, were these difficult headed chances. They're often one-touch finishes. John McKenzie has done some really great work on you know the, the high volume of chances or goals that are one and two touch and how the best players sort of get these shots off really quickly. So I think it's becoming increasingly harder. Maybe coaches spot that and say... I'm putting a lot of burden on this player to, to do this in a certain way. And the the percentage play that you play with it then is just seen as really comes back to control. It's a really big risk. Mm. The many steps taken within aspects of football, Mark, such as almost the formalization of football coaching and the way that coaches start their career, the things that they learn early on in their career, the way that they are taught to see the game, implement training sessions and, and understand the things that matter on a football pitch, and then also the the rise in the use of data in, in analysing the game and in doing so much more within football. That has to be a big aspect of this as well. The, the analysis era is upon us, and with that, a necessity for game plans to be multidimensional because those that aren't will be easily snuffed out by the best analysis. Yeah, and we spoke about it in terms of managers and the, the pitfalls of managers being a little bit too dogmatic in their approach and not necessarily having a, a plan B of sorts and how easy that might be to to predict how to do it. And interestingly enough, Brighton probably maybe being an example of that. So I think that, as you say, in the age of analysis, that almost goes one further if you're having a single superstar who gives the opposition analysts an even easier job because not only do you focus on maybe one specific stylistic trend from the team you can focus on one specific player and look how to to stop them so yeah if you become too predictable in the form of a I guess a single player rather than even a single style then that yeah potential to nullify that that threat becomes higher because you can think of ways to to stop them and maybe historically if we're comparing with generations historically that was probably by kicking lumps out of them and just taking them out of the game in a more of a physical sense of course now it's it's far more tactical and, and as we've spoken about far more nuanced but yeah, I think you're only serving to to back yourself into a corner if you rely tactically on on a single player. And then, as you say, extrapolating from that a single system. There's probably one important thing we should mention as well, and we've touched on football management as a, a broader thing. I think at some point last season, a big two-parter, but coaches now coach, they're head coaches, they're not managers. Their role isn't to, or primarily for, for most clubs, 
broad generalization isn't to recruit players they're not there saying i need these 10 players they have whole you know recruitment teams and, and scouts to do that so their job is to to coach a system or a style a way of playing to have something that can then go into their academy teams to bring players through sort of this this meta or this broader thing that they're working towards in the long term to say here's where we want to be and want to get to so I guess for them, that's that then becomes the system or the, the style of play becomes their sort of overall focus. It's their golden thread that runs through all of it. And I suppose also, Michael, it's worth pointing out, and maybe this is more understood than in previous eras, this is a team sport <laughs> and the teams that tend to either perform or specifically overperform, which is what 99% of clubs that don't have the most money are trying to do, almost all of those teams will play as I would describe it as more than the sum of its parts. So rather than just focus on as if we're able to measure the individual quality of each of their 11 starters, actually the alchemy, the blend, the tactical system and the player's ability to implement that is what probably contributes more broadly to success than the performances and outputs of one individual player. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think you're right. And I think there's almost a bit of a hangover sometimes in terms of how football's discussed from previous eras where individuals were more important. I mean, I sometimes think it's really funny when I see previews of big matches where it discusses the game in terms of key battles. <laughs> so like centre forward against centre back. And I just, I can't remember the last time that I watched a game and afterwards thought, well, the, the most important thing was that they won their key battles. And you still, you know, you hear co-commentators say it. I mean, don't get me wrong. If players are winning their key battles, particularly out wide, where you tend to get more obvious one-against-one situations, then great, that's going to be a good thing. But I just don't think football is like that anymore, if it ever was. And I think there are still probably sports where that does apply. But in football, it's the game has completely changed and it's everything is so much more cohesive the key battles thing or even even the thing where you go through a team and rate each player out of 10 and come up with a score out of 110 to see which team is better i know it's a bit of fun but football doesn't work like that i actually the first five sports that i thought of when you mentioned other sports you're, you're absolutely spot on they were they were cricket they were rugby they were baseball basketball american football all of them have much clearer 1v1 matchups in basically all of the time, happening all the time. Yeah, I guess the way football specifically has it now, really I'm thinking about a team building up short from the back and another team high pressing that a lot of that becomes man for man a lot of the time. Um, there's times where it isn't, but you know they tend to sort of shift that way, especially if the ball goes wide and they tend to lock on one side. So you do get situations where you go, okay, number nine up against a centre-back. If they can proceed the ball to feet or chest them, they can set a pass, they can spin them. Suddenly you're away and you've, you've pick-locked it. Likewise, yeah. if you can get it into a winger, you can go 1v1 against um, the fullback. So not necessarily in terms of like needing superstars, but having players that have got a really high technical level or a physical level and just that ability 1v1 to get you out of a, a situation. There was a great example, and we'll, we'll come on to PSG, I'm sure, later, but Usman Dembele against Real Sociedad in the Champions League first leg, where sort of their two best moments of the game came when they tried to build up through the press and they got Dembele, they passed into him back to goal, and he basically just dribbled back about 10, 15 yards, turned on the ball, faced the defence and dribbled through. The second time he did it, it led to their second goal, and the first time he went through and he got the, the left centre-back booked. So, you know, it, it almost comes back to that, that Pep Guardiola quote of like, players are tactics, and at times you can have a, a plan, but you need the quality to implement it. Mm. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. 
And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. It's only a kick, a jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. And in this discussion about less reliance on individual star players, Michael, is this tactical trend at odds with the fact that I think fans and media are certainly still all about the individual players and all about superstars by extension. Yeah, I think that's the the funny issue from a media side of things. And, you know, we experience this in terms of sometimes when we suggest articles, the things that people click on are based around individuals, you know, particularly going to tournaments. I'm amazed at how often going into tournaments, people want to read about who potentially could be the next big star. And I really felt that actually covering the Women's World Cup last year, which of all the tournaments I've seen, I think was least based around individual players. I think, you know, it's almost like women's football made that shift at roughly that point, going from an individual game to a team game. But it's certainly the thing that attracts clicks. And I think that's, you know, you can look at that in various ways. I think the the rise of social media has played into that. You can literally follow an individual the same way that was quite difficult to 20 years ago or so. I think advertising drives so much focus on individuals rather than teams as a concept. So that has changed things. And of course, because there's so much focus on individuals and that's what gets people watching things, that also influences recruitment strategy. I mean, there was an interesting article on our site by Paul Ballus, who's our Barcelona correspondent, or one of our Barcelona correspondents. And he wrote a very good article about Robert Lewandowski and his period at Barcelona so far. And there was a sentence that said, a lot of people at Barcelona believe they should always have one superstar. And I thought that was quite interesting because I don't think Barcelona historically have been like that. I think Real Madrid have been the club of superstars. Barcelona tend to be the club of of you know, ideology. Uh, obviously, Messi was the best player probably of all time, but he was also representative of their ideology. So, yeah, it does feel like the top clubs are now a little bit more obsessed with individuals, but I think maybe the very best clubs are not. I don't think Liverpool have been based around individuals, really. I don't think Guardiola's Manchester City have been. They've obviously got very good players, but I think they've been built around something a little bit wider. I think for Liverpool and Manchester City, the superstars are probably the manager's themselves there's so much narrative around them but I mean I, I agree with Michael I think that in general though I would say that fans are more knowledgeable more appreciative of what a manager is trying to do tactically rather than just trying to just see the the best players so if if a player the superstar player or one of your better players doesn't perform in a certain way I think they they are far more aware of why or how that might not be the case from a wider tactical perspective and again that probably speaks to the the media that we have now and more explainers and more access to um, to videos on those sorts of tactical principles. But as I often like to do, I looked into the, the research on this and found some um, academic studies. I found a recent study um, by researchers at Birkbeck University from 2022, 
and this is more towards the the TV side of things, but mm-hmm. they, they looked at TV viewing figures uh, for all televised games from the Champions League between 2013-14 and 2018-19. And from a viewing perspective, they found that TV viewers are, are more interested in the star players and to a lesser extent, the, the team quality than the, the sort of the competitive intensity of the game itself. So they just wanted to see the best player get on the ball. You know, tactically, that's not necessarily helpful for the for the team itself. But, you know, Liam mentioned PSG before. If when they lose Kylian Mbappe, they are undoubtedly going to lose a, a large share of the, the revenue from not having him. And that's going to impact them from a commercial perspective. Then that's going to maybe affect the amount of money that they can invest in. And that's going to then, uh, you know, maybe change things on the pitch as well. So... You can see how the superstar sort of effect does then translate into, you know, the, the wider tactical setup. I think transfer fees often drive narratives as well, right, where people can compare and that can really sort of stimulate discussion or sort of opinion. And I'm conscious we're on a tactics pod here, but I don't want to devalue the, the human side of it. I think people should often get into the sport and watch it for individuals because it still is a team, as we said, 11 individuals mm. out on the pitch. And that that is always a good thing. You don't want to make it completely like just football manager 2D, you know, circles moving. It's it's still a game played by humans and, and always will be a player's game. But PSG, as we mentioned, are a really fascinating example of this. So they're going to lose Mbappe, who it's funny because he's, he's scored a really high proportion. I think it was 40% when I last checked of, of PSG's goals, which was the second highest proportion in the league. And, um, you know, that, that's a lot for a team up the top and particularly one that's so far clear. And Luis Enrique's come in in the summer and, really try to make them look a lot, a lot more like Barcelona. It's been about the system and their recruitment's kind of more closely tied to this. They've started signing younger players. It's not the the Galacticos here anymore. They're trying to bring through either young French talent, Parisian talent or or players from, from Ligue 1. And it, it's manifested into that 4-3-3 that you might expect. And to be honest with you, it's not that Mbappe doesn't fit, but if you were to sort of curate a profile for the type of winger that you'd want or the type of number nine, you wouldn't really have him in either. He's kind of really good at being a bit of both, but it's clearly a case of Luis Enrique trying to fit him into that rather than sort of building the team around it. And, and the specific example I'll, I'll raise is after the, the win against Rams this season, away from home, Mbappe scored a hat-trick. They won 3-0. It's a hat-trick of one-touch finishes, two great sort of bits of movement to attack cutbacks for the second and third and a great back post volley for the first one. But he had the fewest touches of any PSG outfielder to start. So when he done a rumour, the keeper had fewer I think he had half of PSG's touches in the opposition box and over half their shots. And after the game, Luis Enrique said, I need more from him. I need mm. more from him in different situations. And it's that thing now of, okay, this is a, a really niche example, but you could score a hat-trick and win the game. But if you're not involved in play, then, then the coach isn't happy with you. Yeah, it speaks to the something that I've written about this week, actually, in terms of the touch volume of strikers and how it's typically associated that low volume equals low quality. It means low involvement, but it doesn't necessarily mean low involvement at, right at the crucial moment. But um, yeah, to kind of reinforce what, what Liam said there, Mbappe has scored 21 goals in, in Ligue 1 this season for PSG. And the nearest for PSG is Randall Colomwani on six and he's only started eight games this season. So it shows how much this, the attack obviously is geared towards him. But I think, you know, when he leaves, it will be more of a coherent team in and out of possession. And Bradley Barkola has, has performed really well on the left-hand side from an attacking perspective, but also from a defensive perspective as well. I think he's trusted more out of possession. He'll track back a little bit more. And more generally, I think that Luis Enrique next season will be able to implement more of a, a tactical plan, a tactical structure that will be without rebuttal because Mbappe is such a, a big name that he will be able to kind of curate it even more than he has now because he's not trying to fit square pegs in round holes to a certain extent. And that sounds strange to say about Kylian Mbappe, but he'll be able to have a full coherent unit 
as I say, in and mm. out of possession. And it's funny because really that's an amazing skill or ability to be involved in the game very little and then come up when your team really needs you to be. That's something you you can't teach or coach or buy, but is increasingly at odds with, with how a team wants to play. And I think it's problems the wrong word but it's a specific thing to Liga largely in a way as well because it's such a young league with, with young players that I think at times the the pressing can be not quite off but it might be half a second later than what it is in the Premier League and you can play that pass or you can have that extra bit of space and I went through since 2018-19 and, and looked through FB Ref and this is across the whole leagues but every season it comes out with the most dribbles per game because there is that time and space and you do get players of really good athletic profiles that have come through that can can dribble and go 1v1 so the way that Luis Enrique is trying to play is probably a bit more suited as a system to, and I think system's important when you then look at the Champions League and we spoke in depth about City last season being defensively strong and solid and I think defending in particular becomes more about the system. Sure, you need a good a good shot stopper and you know centre backs with certain profiles, but that becomes about being you know a unit, being tight, being compact, and knowing when to press, when to go. So I think yeah, it's interesting how leagues impact that, and then how that has repercussions for the European game. The out of possession part of football, Michael, feels very relevant to this discussion because, and this is using a broad brushstroke, superstars are not generally thought of as being the guys who are also working their backsides off uh, without the ball but of course the way that the the game works right now you are either having to be incredibly hard working in terms of the ground that you're covering because you are being asked to press a lot and or being asked to be incredibly switched on mentally in order to not be the weak link that that brings the deck of cards that is a a high press or a, a structured block to come crashing down and that feels like an important part of the discussion and, and maybe Mbappe has within that yeah, for sure. I mean, often it does make sense to basically free one player from defensive responsibilities, probably less so than ever, but certainly you see it sometimes with a winger who's just asked to stay high, try to tempt the fullback to stay put, or if not, just exploit space on the outside of the centre-backs. But it's probably maximum one. I think there was a period where you could free two or even three players from defensive responsibilities. We saw with PSG when they had Neymar Mbappe and Messi but that just didn't work and it was quite a funny contrast from the World Cup final which obviously was all about Messi and Mbappe and they had completely complete freedom from defensive responsibilities but to allow two players in the same team that uh, that freedom just doesn't work so yeah it, it really is all about without the ball stuff because you're just it's not fun is it superstars don't want to be running and chasing they just want to do stuff with the ball which I can sympathize with I think City are a great example of this in terms of their out of possession approach, we saw their press in the Champions League last season often going between a, a 4 4 2 and at times a 4 2 4. And within that, the hardest working players at times were, if not Haaland, De Bruyne as the number 10 or Bernardo out wide, Grealish out wide, to be making those really aggressive sprints to put teams under pressure to force those turnovers. So the, the big talk was, you know, fairly about Guido, this proper defenders, but, but they were not quite the last line of defence, but, you know, the backup if the press doesn't quite work or teams go over them and go long. So you've now got to the point where, yeah, those are some of your most important players. You see the same with Arsenal now, someone like Odegaard covering the most distance on the pitch, making the most sprints because that's where you need to press because now if every team wants to build up short and they've got a deep midfielder, you need the number 10 to be able to press the back lines and the number nine can cover the pivot or vice versa. One last thing on PSG and Mbappe, because I do find this absolutely fascinating the different ways that we've looked at Mbappe and what his departure could mean for PSG leads me to want to ask you guys, do we think there is a chance or even a probability that PSG may be better or 
not significantly worse after the departure of Kylian Mbappe, which would be completely counterintuitive to how a lot of people see the game. Quite possibly. I think, and I'll use Manchester City as a similar example here, Of I think they're a lot more specific now in how they attack with Mbappe. I think they could be better in attacking in other areas. So you look at how different their left side is, where a lot of the time this season it's been Lucas Hernandez, who really is a centre-back, playing on the left, tucking in to make a back three. If, if Mbappe's been playing off the left and then really it's give the ball to him. We've seen more recently Marco Asensio sort of make some crashing runs inside the fullback, but it's been quite a specific, have a defender deep to cover, let Mbappe do what he wants and, you know, roam inside into change positions, go 1v1. Whereas on the right, it's been, Dembele's been a lot more of a dribbler, can sort of go both ways and Hakimi's been making these big underlapping runs. So it's been more of a team down the right-hand side and a bit more individualistic down the left and probably a bit similar to Arsenal in that regard as well when you'd have Saka and sort of White on the overlap and then Martinelli being a bit more sort of free roam. So I think you can have that balance. I think having it both ways on both sides sometimes becomes a bit overly structured and becomes maybe not quite predictable, but you need that ability to, you know, rotate and be free. If you have it completely free on both sides, then it's kind of from a coaching perspective, you go, well, now we've not really got too many organized patterns of play or, or too many structured ways of attacking. So if you're working that way where players have got more freedom to play and that can work, but it means as a coach, the players have got greater responsibility, you're less in control of it. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperice.com. So that's looking ahead to Mbappe's departure from PSG. One side that have already had to learn how to live without their superstar, Tottenham Hotspur, without Harry Kane. Difficult to sift through and separate aspects of this with a change of manager and a huge change in tactical system coming from the manager. But within that, Liam, how have Tottenham done it without Kane? Well, I think you look at the number nine role specifically is is changed almost entirely. I think Kane would have been fine within this, but again, it wouldn't have been the type of system and with how dogmatic Postecoglou is of we're going to play this way. Again, he wouldn't be the sort of profile that, that you get for this. His best assets, of course, we know dropping in, linking play, connecting, working with wingers, but also I think the range of finishes he scores in the box, his ability to you know score left foot, right foot, back to goal, those quick snapshots, he can score from distance. It's being so versatile and that you know is an asset that a team should and do use in England is a great example of being able to have a more fluid attack around him because he can be so good at so many different things. So he's a problem solver in his own regard. But now, and I wrote a piece earlier on this season, this was this was in December, so the, the data won't be updated. I'm sure they've gone way past it. But they've become a much better team actually attacking through cutbacks. And we associate this now even more with sort of title winners and title challenges because you're getting into these, you know, one-touch finish situations really close to goal. You're basically generating tap-ins and they're the 
aside from probably penalties, the best type of chance that you can repeatedly get in open play. And that's because they've got these fullbacks that are rolling inside, not just quite into midfield, but really at times almost onto the last line, into these really advanced half space positions. And it then creates a difficulty of if you sort of mark them with your wingers or your midfielders, you can get sort of pinned in really deep in their space to sort of circulate. And if you don't pick them up, obviously they can connect through. And it also frees up James Madison when he's fit and playing to sort of drop in and, and be the conductor, if you like. So yeah, they've become generally a better team. You look at their spread of goals is now better. And the impact then on the number nine, which has been a mix of, of Son and, and Richarlison, has largely been to sort of stand in offside positions in build-up. It's mm. to not really get involved. Their, their touch frequency per game is really, really low. Ironically, something that Postacoglu wants, it was the same from what I'd seen and what I'd, what I'd read at Celtic. And their job then is to be in that position so that when the ball does get through to the winger or to a fullback, you can crash the box, you'll get in between the posts to to score. And Richarlison is a, is a phenomenal example of that. His recent run, I think, he this might not still be true, but there was a point where he'd scored his eight shots that were the closest to goal that he'd taken this season. And how's Kane's arrival in Munich changed Bayern, Mark? Was there a Robert Lewandowski-shaped hole that he has filled or has he created his own hole hmm. I mean from a goal scoring perspective he's he's definitely filled filled a hole 25 goals in in the Bundesliga is more than any other player across Europe's top five leagues so the goal hole I think it's definitely the case that he's he's definitely filled that from you know spearheading the the attack in that regard but I think to an extent his, his role has meant that Bayern have had to adapt around him a little bit which has had probably more negative effects in, in recent weeks that we've seen than necessarily across the whole season because I think that the narrative coming out of Bayern was things are before their their recent slump has been worse than it actually has been. I think it's been credit to Bayer Leverkusen. But for the, all the reasons that Liam said about Kane liking to, to drop in and get involved in the play, sometimes at Bayern you do need someone to have more akin to what Liam said about playing between the, the two centre-backs or playing between the posts and Kane isn't necessarily always that player and I think that there was a, a really good example or a really good piece that was um, written by John Muller on site just to show this that a few occasions in the, the Lazio game in their most recent Champions League game which they lost 1-0 there were occasions where he did need to be that player who's running off the shoulder even just to stretch the back line a little bit but instead he was coming to, towards the play and then when the, the, the play did go beyond him he wasn't even near the box never mm -hmm. mind trying to get a shot away at goal. The point I guess I'm making is that, yes, he scored quite a few goals, but especially in Bayern's recent slump, you sometimes do need your central striker to be the central striker. And he's not always wanting to, to be that player. And of course, injuries can also be reasons why teams don't want to rely on superstars in any tactical system because they create a single point of failure by relying on someone with a unique skill set that perhaps can't be replicated elsewhere in your squad. Uh, Liverpool and Virgil van Dijk spring to mind, and, and perhaps the most obvious defensive superstar in English football over the last decade or so. When van Dijk got injured, Mark, in the 2020-21 season, where he missed 57 games for club and country, is that the best example of this? And how did Liverpool cope with that? Yeah, I'd say it probably is the, the best example. I think, yeah, to Liam's point, you almost it's quite jarring to think of a centre-back as a superstar but I suppose he is one of the, the versions of that so yeah I think it is one of the the key examples I think it was obvious that he was crucial to Liverpool from a defensive foundation perspective it, it, that's why I think it's slightly different to, to your typical sense where you think okay well we're not scoring as many goals because we don't have our superstar player or we don't have as much creativity in the in the attack but he was so 
crucial with the with his recovery pace and his dominance in in aerial duels that it allowed Liverpool to have a really high back line and then that affected you mentioned the sort of the deck of cards falling it had such a an effect on the rest of the team if they weren't able to play a high defensive line because then they're not able to squeeze as high and then they're able to be played through and I think that's essentially what happened in, in that regard so it affected their whole out of possession approach it subsequently led to a, a terrible season of just so many injuries but I think the reason that injury those injuries happened wasn't just kind of bad luck or serendipity but the likes of Fabinho and Henderson had to play a centre-back and their their profile and their role that they had was obviously typically a midfielder and they had to do kind of shuttle runs mm. to have that high line and they were getting muscular injuries because they weren't built in the same or aren't built in the They the didn't same have centre-back hamstrings. It's basically that, yeah. So I think one one injury, one crucial injury to, to a single player actually had a huge knock-on effect for the rest of the squad. Crucial, cruciate injury. And what about this season, Michael, with Manchester City, with Erling Haaland and Kevin De Bruyne having been unavailable for quite significant spells of the season? How have they been able to handle that? Well, I think they're a club that's based around a philosophy and based around having lots of different players who can do different jobs. So I think they've adjusted pretty well, particularly in terms of De Bruyne, because I think they've got so many other good attackers who can play not necessarily the same role, but they can contribute things that De Bruyne would I think Alvarez as a number 10 is an option or has been an option when De Bruyne has been out. Foden, I think, has stepped up well this season. Haaland, I mean, it comes back to a debate that has been ongoing for the last 18 months and a debate that we've had before about basing your side around one striker and whether you want the goals all to come from one striker or from others. And I still think there's a, a question mark, really, about whether City are better with Haaland or without him. They won the treble last year, but when you look at their... A goal scored tally in the league, despite him scoring 40-odd goals. He didn't actually score any more overall compared to the previous season. So, yeah, I think I think City have basically got the balance right. They've got a lot of very good players who can play in a harmonious system. And they've got a couple of players, De Bruyne and Haaland, who can just do things that no one else can. And I suppose in the interests of bringing up individuals and celebrating those who are, who are performing well, Phil Foden's obviously stepped up hugely in, in terms of making a leap uh, for minutes played and, and goal contributions as well as so much else in his game. I suppose before we wrap up, uh, it's worth separating league football and the desire to win titles and, and succeed over the course of a 38-game season and tournament-level football, which can become knockout-level football in the case of the Champions League and the World Cup as well. Liam, in tournament football, is the hypothesis that it's still ripe or riper for superstar-led systems, but that that is, as discussed, something that at league level seems to have gone out of the game? And if so, why is that? Well, I think the first point is the the sheer amount of games that you play or you don't play, um, similar to you know knockout football in general, that there's there's fewer matches, so you need players to to win you games in both boxes to be decisive. That's the same for goalkeepers, you know, defenders as well as, as strikers, the ones that will score you goals. But I think there's an impact of it being a bit less tactically complex, just because you get less time to train, less time to prepare. The analysis, is, of course, tends to still be at the same level, but I think it could be more volatile in terms of players being in or being out. France are a great example of this. They played a back three you know, in the Nations League and got really far with it um, under Deschamps and then went back to a 4-2-3-1 actually in, um, yeah, in, in the World Cup itself. And when they played, obviously, Argentina in the final, that was a great example of two teams under two head coaches, one who's been there 
a decade, one who'd been there a, a year and a half or however long with, with Scaloni. Um, and both had built their teams in ways that manifested quite similarly around a real sort of star player. And I think it's just linked now to England specifically seem to move their style. This isn't verbatim, but I think Gareth Southgate said something along the lines of because most of the top teams where the England players were playing at played in a possession way, high pressing in the system, they wanted to match the national team up to that because mm. that would make it easier you know, getting players to do the same things for the national team that they're doing on a daily, weekly, monthly basis for their club, rather than having them come in and try and coach a whole different way of playing and change everything. It's like, no, it's kind of the same, just with fewer tweaks. I mean, Michael's mentioned it in, in weeks gone by about the sort of European club level. The games are so tight that the, the difference makers are often your superstars. So I can sort of see it more in tournament football at club level. And at international level, we see it so much in major tournaments that quite naturally the disparity between your your best players and your worst players are far greater than at club level mm. and you know playing across a, a whole uh, domestic season so naturally it's it's an obvious point to make but you just simply have less choice to to choose from because you can't sign players you've got to deal with the the cohort of players that you have so i think that because of that fact there's more it's going to be more likely geared towards a superstar if the opportunity is there you think of something as simple as Lewandowski playing for for Poland, the quote unquote worst player in that squad, is going to be a lot worse than than uh, maybe someone who's a, a higher nation who's got a higher level team. So I can see why there'd be more of a super, geared towards superstars at, at international level than, than necessarily club level. Well, thank you very much, guys. A, a lot to get our heads around there. Been a fascinating episode, and I want to thank Mark, Michael, and, and Liam for helping us out in this discussion and providing what has hopefully been an interesting listen. Please do get in touch with us. You can do so on Twitter, but also on the Athletic site, there is a specific podcast page. And uh, for each episode, there is a comment section. And it's always lovely to hear uh, what you guys are thinking and saying off the back of listening to the pod. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed and to the Athletic as well. You can do that by heading to theathletic.com forward slash tactics for the best current discount on an annual subscription we'll be back again next week and looking forward to it already go well the athletic